It's Muppeturgy with a questionable episode about the Peter Sellers episode of The Muppet Show with our own very special guest star, Bill L. Dardai. Yay! Hey everyone, I'm David Levy. Welcome back. So glad you're here with us. Today I have here with me Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, Adam Grossworth, and the aforementioned very special guest star, Bill L. Dardai. Bill L. Dardai is a playwright, essayist, and performance artist based in the Chicago area. He's an ensemble member of Lifeline Theater and an alumnus of the Neo-Futurists, and has written for several acclaimed audio dramas including Unwell, The Imagined Neighborhood, and the Alba Salix Royal Physician. According to a 2018 BuzzFeed quiz, the Muppet to whom he shares the greatest kinship is Janice. Well, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So tell us a little bit about your history with the Muppets. Uh, well, okay, I had, to, I had to look this up, but I was actually born almost exactly a year after the Muppet Show debuted. And like, what I, what I have a very distinct memory of uh, is that the Muppet Show would be on at like six in the morning in the Chicago area, like when I was like six or seven years old. And um, I think I accidentally discovered that one morning. I think I woke up earlier than I ever had before and turned on the television and discovered the Muppet show. And then it turned into a thing where I was forcing myself awake at six in the morning so I could get up and watch the, and get up and watch the Muppet show. And then, yeah, it just kind of followed me like the Muppets throughout my life. I think a lot of my personal aesthetic was formed by things from, from the show and the movies and what have you. And, you know, and then of course, whatever came through Sesame Street. I think I, I think it was a moment of revelation where it's like, oh my gosh, the Sesame Street Muppets and these Muppets are Muppets. Like, they are all the same. Yeah, it's just, you know, I was a young and stupid child. It's a very exciting revelation. Well, I uh, can't wait to hear what you have to add to our conversation. I think this episode has a lot to talk about. Indeed. But before we get there, I believe we have some corrections and additions. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. So I decided to refresh my memory on the gong show after we talked about it on the JP Morgan episode. And it's funny because at the time, Michal said, wouldn't it be funny if the uh, prize was a gong? It is a gong. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There was a, a, a golden gong award. And also the winner of each show would win a check for $516 and 32 cents, which Chuck Barris, the host, would, would say is a highly unusual amount, but in actuality, it was just like the SAG minimum pay for TV at the time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but you only get that if you win. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. you had you had to win. But mm. um, yeah, what a prize. <laughs> <laughs> I take a golden gong. I also learned in the interim that apparently after the second time J.P. Morgan flashed her tits on the show, she was let go. But that was during the show's final season anyway, so they maybe knew that it was already on its way out, so it wasn't quite yeah. like the big fuck you to her that they might have thought it was. Mm-hmm. Huh. This week we were talking about Season 2, Episode 19 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of December 6th, 1977, and it aired in New York on February 27th, 1978. Uh, it was the both the 19th episode in the production order and the 19th episode to air in New York after Julie Andrews and before Lou Rawls. We're in a stretch of episodes that all aired around the same time, so I really have nothing to report on TV. It's the same lineup we've had for weeks, and um, not really any interesting movies or miniseries this week. Uh, not even any wife swapping. No, no wife or swapping. Jessica Walter. No Jessica Walter that I could that I could discern. Um, uh, the the six million dollar man, but that's a few years old. It was a rerun. 
So yeah, Have we lost the San Pedro beach bums. We, we lost them a long time ago. Um, you know, we got little house, but uh, not nothing. You know, not a not a not a very special episode. <laughs> Just a regular, run of the mill little house. Lou Grant. You know, all our faves, but uh, nothing exciting to report uh, on this Monday evening in 1978. I'm afraid. Better luck next week. But let's get into it because I think there's a lot to discuss. Mm-hmm. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Peter Sellers, comedian, actor, creep. Uh, not to be confused with Peter Sellers with an A, who is an American director of some note that uh, for a long time I would get confused with him, but that just might be a me problem. I was today years old when I learned those were two different people. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. We'll talk a little bit about what a creep Peter Sellers was, but I discovered in my research for this episode a whole podcast called What a Creep that does deep dives into uh, creepy men. I think it's just men of renown. I think they have an episode on goop. So Oh, <laughs> okay. So creepy people. <laughs> uh, the Peter Sellers episode is season nine, episode seven. I think they're in season 14 now. There are a lot of creeps to report on but we'll include a link in the show notes. It's a great listen. Highly recommend it, although you may want to punch a wall. Anyway, born in Britain in 1925, like so many recent Muppet Show guest stars, Peter Sellers made his stage debut as a child featured in his parents' vaudeville act. When World War II broke out, his school was evacuated to another part of the country, but his mother, with whom he had an abnormally close relationship even through adulthood, Uh, did not let him go. So, at age 14, he ended his formal schooling and began working at a theater. On the job, he learned by watching the talents who performed there, and he began learning how to play the drums. Between his drumming and his nascent comedy act, he landed a job touring with the Entertainment's National Service Association, which was sort of like the British USO. When he was 18, he joined the Royal Air Force, and although his bad eyesight kept him grounded, he landed in an entertainment troupe known as The Gang Show. They toured the UK, and then later India, and this is where he began one of his really unfortunate signature acts, browning up and donning a shitty accent to play Indian caricatures. Following the war, he developed his career on stage, on television, and in radio. By 1951, he and a few of the actors he had worked with in this stage of his career, including future Muppet Show guest star Spike Milligan, debuted a new radio sketch comedy program called The Goon Show. It was a huge hit on the BBC. It ran for 10 years. It's like a landmarking comedy, sort of the prior to Monty Python, probably the biggest British sketch comedy show to, to influence British comedy. Throughout the 1950s, Sellers also appeared in film and on television, both in Goon Show-related projects and another fair. In 1958, he recorded his first comedy album, The Best of Sellers, produced by George Martin, who would go on to help a failed skiffle outfit reinvent themselves as the Beatles. The album was a hit and reached number three on the UK Albums chart. In 1959, his follow-up, Songs for Swinging Sellers, would also hit number three. That year, he was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Short Subject Live Action for his film The Running, Jumping, and Standing Still Film, which is available to watch on archive.org, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. In the 60s, his film career really took off, first in British films and then internationally. Uh, He did a lot of movies, so I'm just going to touch on a few highlights. In 1960, he filmed The Millionaires, in which he appeared again in brownface as an Indian doctor opposite Sophia Loren. Peter fell in love with her 
and absolutely destroyed his marriage and his relationship with his kids over it. Even though, to this day, his friends can't say for certain whether his relationship with Loren was platonic or romantic. Regardless, it was a very successful professional partnership, and the movie spawned a couple of hit novelty singles by the couple, who then put out an album and took their act on tour. Other notable films of his of the 60s included two with Stanley Kubrick, Lolita and Dr. Strangelove, two with Woody Allen, What's New Pussycat, and Casino Royale, and most importantly, the Pink Panther series, which would continue into the 70s. In 1962, director Blake Edwards, who you may remember as Mr. Julie Andrews, tapped Sellers to replace former Muppet Show guest star Peter Ustinov in a film role he had just backed out of, Inspector Clouseau in the movie The Pink Panther. The role is a supporting one in the movie, but Sellers was such a breakout hit for this performance, it spawned a series of sequels focused on him. He continued to be a total shit to the people who cared about him, including his second wife, actress Britt Eklund, and to Blake Edwards. The 70s brought more movies, another marriage, an engagement to Liza Minnelli while he was still married and she was engaged to Desi Arnaz Jr., and what appeared to his friends to be a nervous breakdown that manifested, among other ways, and an occasional inability to be himself, which is to say, to not be in character, which may sound familiar if you've watched this episode of The Muppet Show already. <laughs> By the time he appeared on The Muppet Show, he had a fourth wife, two heart attacks, which was actually nine heart attacks, because the first one was a series of eight heart attacks over the course of three hours, uh, which was caused by him doing poppers, and a steadfast refusal to seek professional help for his deteriorating mental health. You might notice that even on The Muppet Show, Sellers is in character in every scene, never just there as himself. However, if there was a silver lining to this situation, his performance on The Muppet Show earned him an Emmy nomination. He would make a few more films, including The Prisoner of Zenda, Being There, and the fiendish plot of Fu Manchu, that's who he played. Mm -hmm. In 1980, he would suffer another heart attack. This one would end his life at age 54. He's primarily remembered for his comedic brilliance and his ability to thoroughly dissolve into his characters, but I'm going to be honest. His comedy has never been for me, and between the on-scene racism and the off-screen shittiness to everyone around him, real hard time with this one. Uh, so I'm hoping that some of you might have some nice things to say about Peter Sellers. Or some things to say. I There's a lot I can't defend about Sellers, um, as, you've, as you have just mentioned, but uh, I ultimately just feel very sad him i i feel i feel he's a very tragic individual in in a lot of ways um he seems like somebody who who was just emotionally kind of stunted who had a knack for comedic timing and i don't know it just it, there's something about it that something, i think there's a very lengthy examination of peter sellers as a person that i think says a lot about britain in the 50s and 60s but uh, that's not what this podcast is about. So I will stop there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I went through a very brief Pink Panther phase in like middle school, I guess it was. It was one of the things where I saw one of the movies. I was like, I have to see all of these. And really, the first one that I saw is the only one that I remember genuinely loving. It was one of those things where after I'd seen the first, I'm like, oh, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is, is I went back and I revisited what I remembered to be the, the funniest scene. So Return of the Pink Panther was the first one that I saw. Um, and I found the scene that I found so funny on YouTube. And it is still very funny. Now, the thing is, it's not especially unique to him. It's one of those things where his 
cultural imprint, I think, is more important than his work. Because you see a lot of him in Rowan Atkinson, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams to a lesser extent. Like that was the thing that really struck me as I remembered him being like a very singular talent. And I was like, oh, oh no, he was a he was a good physical comedian and, you know, good with voices, but I don't know. It was it was sad to return to it. Sad, sad is also the word that I, I keep coming back yeah. to. My, I know Mike Myers uh, in particular, like modeled his career. Yeah. Mm. Like, it, like the choices he made. And I think there's something, something kind of, something, I think there's something kind of, you know, weirdly generationally sad about Mike Myers choosing Peter Sellers because I, it feels like some of the choices he made were so uh, attached to Sellers that they were not necessarily good for Myers. Uh, I think I think very specific. We're talking about the guru right exactly. here. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Which is like it's like oh, Mike, Peter did that a few times. He shouldn't have done it then, and you really can't do that now. Right. Doctor Strangelove is on a very long list of movies that I I watched much too late, mm-hmm. and and just like didn't didn't get. And I I'm sure if I had watched them, uh, I mean I wasn't born yet when it came out, but you know I'm I'm sure if I had if I had. I'd seen that movie when it was new or even just when I was younger and, and it had not been so built up. I probably would have appreciated it more. But one of the things that I find deeply baffling about it is the way that Peter Teller is just playing, you know, 800 roles in it. It's like, there are other actors (laughs) and it's not that he's not good. It's just like, we, we know it's the same guy. I don't get the bit. And, and it's sort of like an Austin Powers and it, you know, and when that movie came out, it's like, well, I, I, I live in this time, and I understand that Mike Myers is famous, but it, I, it also really just seems like he's jerking off the whole time mm-hmm. <laughs> watching this movie, but which is a contemporary I liked. So I sort of imagine, like, as a contemporary of Peter Sellers, you know, you probably get it because it's like, oh, it's Peter Sellers doing his thing in this in this Stanley Kubrick movie, but like, it, yeah, it's weird, and it doesn't age super well in a, in a, in a way that I, I cannot imagine Austin Powers, which I have not revisited has aged well for a lot of reasons, but like, that's, that's one of them, right? Like what, why did you not just cast other people in this? He was supposed to be uh major Kong too, actually. He was supposed to be the slim Pickens character. Kubrick had, had initially cast him as all four and Sellers did not want to do Kong. He didn't want to sit in the cockpit for you know hours on end. So he, he actually faked, he actually faked a broken leg to get out of it. Well, yeah. Now I respect him a little more because uh, that seems like a good choice. Well, just, well I mean, if, if anybody's gonna gonna you know screw with Stanley Kubrick, it's gonna be Peter Sellers. So, yeah, exactly. Also, that just seems really uncomfortable. So good for him. And you know, for all that he screwed with Blake Edwards during the making of the various Pink Panther movies, Blake Edwards got him back by eventually screwing his fourth wife. So. <laughs> well, the seventies, uh, man. Oh my. Yeah. On that note. Mm-hmm. Why don't you get me uh, Bilal, you uh, are clearly the most well-versed in Peter Sellers among us. What did you think of him as a Muppet Show guest? So, yeah, having going back and re-watching this episode after some time, I watched it a few years ago with my son when I was trying to get him a little more interested in the Muppet Show. But watching it like just a few days ago, I was just kind of struck by how how much stronger the non the non Peter Sellers sketches were. I think also knowing as much as I do about Sellers now, like I was just kind of unsettled by his, uh, by his inability to be himself. Uh, I think I, I felt, I felt, a, I felt a little bit like I was watching too much, too much of a, a certain person's psychosis 
in in this in this friendly kids show. So yeah, unsettled. I came away I came away a little unsettled from the show. Christy, how about you? Woof. <laughs> the word that I keep coming back to is unfortunate. Mm. I hated this episode so much I couldn't get through it in one sitting. Wow. I mean, most of what Peter Sellers is doing is so creepy or off-putting that it just kind of saps the fun out of it. There's one almost saving grace at the end of the episode for me, and we'll get to it. But overall, it's a no for me, dog. (laughs) (laughs) David? Yeah, this is a not for David episode. The first time I watched it, I was so put off by the opening number that it was hard for me to watch the rest of the episode and give it any kind of a reasonable chance. So I think I liked it better the second time because I was more prepared for what I was going to see. But even the parts that I thought were fine were just fine. Like there's, I don't know that there's anything in this episode that I, I would say is really like worth sitting through the rest of it to see. So uh, yeah, too bad. Michal. Yeah, I didn't hate it as much as some of you guys did. Uh, there were certainly a lot of individual yikes moments and then a few individual bangers as well. I I really dug the the manic pacing of things popping in and out, appearing and disappearing and Kermit losing it. And I do kind of enjoy when the guest star is so bizarre that uh, he actually freaks out some of the Muppets. Uh, there is some entertainment in that. I totally resonate with the the unsettled feeling of it all. This is not an episode that I would recommend to a friend to watch. And after everything that I learned this week about Peter Sellers, it was hard to enjoy the rewatch, but it's not at the bottom of my list of episodes we've seen so far. Yeah, I think I'm 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 mostly with you, Michal. It 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 really felt like a season 1 episode. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the thing I I did really like about it has nothing to do with Peter Sellers. Um, it has a, it's not even a backstage plot, but there's a, there's a backstage runner that I enjoy that we'll talk about that just has Kermit in like full manic wits and frazzled mode, which I, I just always find funny. And that then culminates in a sketch and that does loop in the guest star a little bit. And so that's something that I, that I enjoy and that I think they're still kind of working on in season two. And so I, I like sort of seeing that continue to grow. But yeah, I mean that said, like the the opening number is is dreadful and it's not great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's sort of in the same way that I I kind of appreciated what like Peter Ustinov was was going for, and there sort of there there's a similar vibe there, um, even though it wasn't for me. I I didn't hate it. I'm not watching it again anytime soon. I do want to talk a little bit about the disclaimer at the beginning. This is a this is a week where we get the um the full you can't skip it or fast forward it. Was it? 10 second, 20 second disclaimer with the countdown clock. If you're watching on Disney plus. Yeah. On, on Disney plus. And I really sat with it this time. And, and I want to be clear. I am very much in favor of this disclaimer existing. It should, we need it. And, and I'm generally a fan of the Walt Disney corporation, but this, there's this one phrase that just jumped out at me uh, on my second watch in particular. Disney is committed to creating stories with inspirational and aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe. Yes. Good. Great. Love that. Please keep doing that, Disney. To learn more about how stories have impacted society, visit Disney.com slash stories matter. What does that even mean? That's like a several dissertations. I, like, this is why people who hate this sort of thing hate this sort of thing and make fun of it and make fun of uh, of woke liberals. And like, I just, 
it's it's a nonsense phrase and it made me angry and especially this week where the disclaimer is not at all about how stories have impacted society but is about a guy in brownface using a slur we will get into it like there's no story impacting anything it's just racism and it it really it just well, like i mean please. but the the point is that racism at its heart is about the stories that people tell themselves about other people that vilifies them that therefore has an impact on the world right like yes and it is also a it is a it is a stock disclaimer to this being used on everything on disney plus that requires it and in many cases it is about story like you know much fuller richer stories that happen to have things in them that are problematic so like i i get it but like i, I don't know i just it it jumped out at me p- I think because it, I had just watched this episode and knew sometimes we're not sure <laughs> this week, we were very sure what they were referring to. And it's also not even an accurate description of the webpage it's pointing you to, which I went to, which I hadn't done before either, and is actually quite lovely. I think they're doing a really good job, but also notably has some specific examples, like with actual screenshots, and then like really detailed descriptions of the content and why it is problematic, which I also actually wish that they were doing with these warnings, like as like actual proper content warnings, um, not just because they'd be useful for our podcast, <laughs> but because I think they'd be more useful in general than this like wishy-washy thing. But, you know, I, I understand that takes a lot more time and effort. I, I worked in corporate copywriting for 10 years, and this this felt, th- this was actually kind of triggering um, to, to see that sentence, because it was like, oh, the trigger I... warning was triggering. Yeah, yeah, well, just, just that sentence was like, oh, I know how this was created. Like, I, I could see, uh-huh. I could see the room, I could see the people tossing things on the whiteboard, um, I could see somebody saying, "Hey, look, we already we already got the website Disney.com/slash/stories/matter, so make it work." Like it just it, it feels it feels like a sort of thing that like, it feels like a handful of things got reverse engineered, and this was the best thing they could do, so they don't have to keep rewriting a brand new disclaimer every single time. But it's 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 absolutely not going to work in a lot of cases, and in some cases, it doesn't work for any of them because they went so vague, right? You know, right. there's two purposes to this kind of a disclaimer, and it fails at one, but I think it really succeeds at the other. So it fails if you are looking for the kind of warning that says, I want to be able to protect my kids or myself from seeing specific kinds of content for whatever reason. You know, if you have a, a you know an actual trauma where there's a trigger where, where you have like a, a medical reason to not want to see the depiction of something, this doesn't help you. Or, you know, whatever, that kind of thing, this is no good. But the other side of this is, if it's getting you to engage in discussions about, gee, what is it that we just watched? Why is it problematic? Which parts do you think were challenging or inappropriate or whatever? The fact that it's vague has actually done exactly that for us. The weeks that we've looked at this and said, gee, we're not really sure the trigger warning could be about this or it could be about that. That's actually like a really productive conversation. Uh, and maybe I'm giving Disney too much credit. Maybe <laughs> that's not their intention. But, right. Uh, but, but, but it is a positive outcome of the fact that it's more vague than we might. It's true. It's, it was re- it's truly, it's just to learn more about how stories have impacted society that, that set me off. Yeah. Um, I will, I will put the link to the, to the, to the stories matter website in the show notes. Cause I, I actually do think that they've done a really nice job with that. And it, and it is much more, I mean, also 
you know, it's Disney. They're much more concerned about the content that they created. Sure. So it's much more, you know, uh, Pinocchio, the Aristocats, yeah. um, Peter Pan, you know, they're much more focused on that on the site. And I get it. The, the, the Muppet show was an afterthought in terms of what's being put on Disney plus. Anyway, I don't want to go too deep into this. We have a lot more to talk about, but um, it, it's a thing I noticed. The actual we've, we've seen that screen many times. Like I even I screenshotted it. Well, I mean, I made a, I made a gif of it counting down one one week, and this is the week <laughs> that it like set me off. So I thought we could talk about it a little bit, or I could rant about it a little bit. Peter Sellers, fifteen seconds to curtain, Mister Sellers. Gonzo. <laughs> <laughs> fifteen seconds. I should live so long. <laughs> Uh, what you just heard was Scooter finding Gonzo looking into a mirror at Peter Sellers, who is behind him, dressed as Inspector Clouseau. Gonzo is whipping knives over his shoulder. Peter Sellers is responding as Clouseau. Oh, man. I just now have a, a huge, great fix for this episode. Get the time mm-hmm. time machine out. I'm ready. <laughs> Gonzo kills him? <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, the good plan B. Um, <laughs> no. What what if he'd been in character as Clouseau the entire time? The Clouseau time. and the Muppets would have been right. great. Investigating yeah. a crime backstage. Yeah. Or figuring out why things are appearing and disappearing. Tracking them to the lab. Yep. Oh my you God. solved it. You just did it. Ugh. Yep. Hire us, Disney. Even Dr. Strangelove with, with Bunsen and Beaker could have been something. Yeah. Yeah. Or with Dr. Strange Pork. It's right there. Oh, goddamn. <sighs> Apparently, Peter Sellers was a big fan of The Muppet Show and came in with very specific ideas of what he wanted to do. And one of those was that he really felt a kinship with Gonzo and wanted to do at least something with Gonzo. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. And I guess there was something in that in that same article about he didn't want to upstage The Muppets, right? Like, he, he wanted The Muppets to, to lead, as it were. So I guess that's also part of why we didn't get any of that. Unlike, say, the Elton John episode. But still... Man, this week I grew to dislike Peter Sellers so much that now I'm mad at him for having a work ethic. Mad <laughs> <laughs> for being a fan of the thing that we're a fan of. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to share that with him. Anyway, there's a weird little development in Kermit's yay evolution this week. The Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Peter Sellers! <laughs> no so, one's sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we did not clip Statler and Waldorf, who are coughing and blowing their noses at nope. the theater. Nope. No. Too soon. Like, nope. they sound really sick. It's not just yeah. like, oh, the theater's dry and I have a cough. No, they're actively sick. Stay home, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have their own box, but yeah, no. Mm. Gonzo gets up to blow his trumpet and then Beautiful Day Monster sneaks up behind him with a much bigger trumpet and steals his thunder. And Gonzo responds, thief, which is very cute. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. So backstage, Kermit is having a hard time this week. Everything's going wrong. There are acts that are canceling. Oh, no. The next act just canceled. <laughs> what? <laughs> but that was a terrific act. Yeah. It was Prunella and her prancing poultry. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kermit, see, about, about that poultry, mm-hmm. yesterday, duck hunting season began. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. I will go and explain to the audience. Uh, 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 Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how to tell you this, uh, but uh, frankly, the next act can't make it. Uh, They're otherwise engaged 
with a lot of orange sauce, I'm afraid. Yeah, right before Fozzie says duck hunting season began, he removes his hat and just poses dramatically. <laughs> they both just stare off wistfully. <laughs> Alas, the ducks. That's a dark, it's a dark, dark joke. I, I mean, really, I adore it. <laughs> it's a dark duck joke. Yeah. Yeah. On top of everything else that's going wrong this week, uh, whatever Bunsen and Beaker are cooking up in the lab seems to be making things appear and disappear at random, in- including Muppets and bombs and also the guest star. So let's hear a little bit of the dressing room sketch where Kermit continues to be frazzled and also just straight up confused by Peter Sellers. I um, recite the soliloquy from Shakespeare's Richard III whilst and at the same time, playing tuned chickens. You, you recite the soliloquy from Shakespeare's Richard III whilst, and at the same time, playing tuned chickens? You have it, my dear Kermit, you have it. Now is the winter of our discontent. Made glorious summer by the sun of York. He's like holding the chickens under his arms <laughs> and, and like, playing them like by playing them. With his elbows. It's weird. And it goes on for a while. <laughs> I love this. This might be my favorite thing he does. In the I know it's, it's pretty great. Um, and at the end he has like a little bowl of chicken feed in front of him and he feeds each of the chicken, like to reward them for doing a good job. And it's just yeah, so they're giving him little pecks on the cheek. Uh, sadly, Kermit disagrees. <laughs> That is really, that is, uh, that's, I uh, enjoy a good chicken. Uh, yes, that is really wonderful. Uh, but you can't do that on our show. Why not? Well, because Gonzo just did it last month. But it died, Peter. It was terrible. I mean, they've got no taste around here. Oh, but you're absolutely right, my dear Gonzo. They have no taste at all. And then he disappears. And there's a double irony here because... This joke of you can't do that thing because we've already done it on the Muppet Show is a joke that they did last week on the JT Morgan episode. <laughs> Saying that they couldn't do a joke because they did it last year when they had just done it the previous episode. <laughs> oh, I love a good running gag. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so as long as we're at the dressing room sketch, this is as good a time as any to just talk a little bit about how unsettling Peter Sellers is, if we have anything more to say about that. Kermit finds him wearing a, a Viking hat and one boxing glove and a long fake beard and a, a backwards corset. Is that what that is? A girdle? He's trying to figure out what the article of clothing was. If anybody out there has been trying to figure out how to build a sexy wordle costume, I figured it out. You build it over lingerie and tell people that you're dressed as girdle. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, <sighs> it's too many letters. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, Peter Sellers is so weird that he's actually freaking Kermit out more than he was already freaked out. Uh, you know, I, I just love all your wild characters, Peter. But, you know, backstage here, you can just relax and be yourself. Mm-hmm. But that, you see, my dear Kermit, would be altogether impossible. I could never be myself. Uh, never yourself? No. You see, there is no me. I do not exist. <laughs> I, I beg your pardon. Yes? There used to be a me, mm-hmm. but I had it surgically removed. Uh, uh, can, can we uh, change the subject? That quote in particular was the one that, like, 
like had me kind of like sitting back in my chair and widening my eyes because it was because it felt like it felt almost like a confession. It it felt like the sort of thing it felt like the sort of thing his friends can and did say about him often to his biographers that there was no real Peter Sellers. That he lived so much in character that yeah. he just ceased to exist. Yeah, yeah. That like no, and and you know, and again, how much of that is how much of that is upbringing? How much of that is just his own just emotional makeup? I think it's it, it's very telling. I think about him, and I think it's there's something that's very again. I think kind of sad that he has this moment on the Muppet Show where he is expressing what is perhaps the truest expression of himself, which is that there is no self. And there's that there's that deeply awkward silence mm-hmm. <laughs> in the middle of it. Whereas like, is that how they rehearsed it? Is that just Peter Sellers? Like it's it it feels le- genuinely awkward in a way that I'm not used to on the Muppet show. <laughs> I mean, I had it removed surgically as such a good line that it it must have been scripted. <laughs> Presumably, but 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 was the pause scripted right. or was you know it's just indirected um and apparently this became a, a pretty famous quote of of peter you know attributed to peter sellers and it, and it originated here so that's that's something so for now let's leave it at kermit is frazzled we will get to the resolution uh when we get to muppet labs later <laughs> Disclaimer earning time. Yeah, so interestingly enough, there are three songs in this episode all by the same writer, a writer named Abe Burroughs. And Abe Burroughs was a composer and a writer, and he had a long, illustrious career. He started out in radio. He worked for Danny Kaye. Um, he's very famous for being one of the co-writers on several big Broadway shows. He was one of the book writers of Guys and Dolls and one of the book writers of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Uh, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. And of interest to the the tens of listeners of my other podcasts, he's the father of uh, <laughs> TV director James Burroughs, who directed for, among other things, Caroline in the City. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Clearly um, his most illustrious and important credit. Yeah, yeah. Forget Mary Tyler Moore, Cheers. Yeah. Cheers, friends, Will and Grace. And no, Caroline in the City. Frazier. Caroline in the City, <laughs> uh, most important. Yeah, so apparently A. Burroughs was at a dinner party in 1977 at uh, Joe Raposo's house with Jim Henson and uh, Dr. Seuss himself, Ted Geisel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, presumably that was the inspiration for the surfeit of Ave Burroughs songs that we have in this episode. Just one dinner that went really well for him. Apparently. So yeah, so our opening number <laughs> is really problematic. So yeah, I've actually forgotten now which what lyrics are in the clip, but let's just assume that a disclaimer is required for yeah. what's about to play. And is for long ago, as he cries. Oh, oh, I cannot play. Oh, until my I actually think I totally avoided the G word. Yeah. yeah. It's too bad that uh, such a bop had to be racist.
Yeah. It this so this this made me okay. So yeah, so so it's an A Burroughs song called uh, "A Gypsy's Violin," and A Burroughs had several albums of songs that he wrote, and some of these songs come from those albums. Yeah, this made me wish that the Muppets had collaborated with uh, Gogol Bordello. Because I'd love that. It would it would be delightful. Like there there is in the fabric of this something delightful, but it's so buried in layers of racist muck that it's lost. You know what's funny about this song is it is on the Muppet Show Volume Two album that we have discussed in the past. That album had two songs performed by guest stars. One was Bernadette Peters singing just one person. The other was this and. On the Red Dead Peters episode, I mentioned that this song was there, but I hadn't gone back to listen to it. And even though I listened to that album roughly 100,000 times as a kid, I had blocked the song out and remembered it only as a violin number and didn't remember that there were words. And I think I referred to it as an instrumental on that episode. So uh, <laughs> there's a late correction for that. But also, wouldn't it have been better? Like, the song isn't great, right? Obviously, it's, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's a white guy, you know, writing this in the, you know, the style of music and whatever, whatever. And it's, trafficking in some stereotypes about the Roma people uh, and using a word that we don't use anymore, though we did until really super recently. And like by we, I mean like the theater community. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. who am mm-hmm. I to talk? But like, like the song itself, I don't think is, is hugely the problem, but like Peter Sellers is 100% in brown makeup. It's not like uh, when it, when it started and it's the first, I mean, he has that brief intro in the dressing room, but like I was actually not entirely sure, which is not to say that that makes it okay. But, but like then he comes back, he's on his second screen appearance. I was like, oh yes, no, he is he is definitely a different color in this scene than he was in the last scene. And this is a thing that he did, right? He you know he put on makeup to play these characters, and some of them were not the same race as him. And like that is to me the most egregious and unacceptable part of this, uh, you know, and all the accents and and all of that. I think the song being on an album without the visual is not nearly as bad. On the other hand, without the visual, you do not get to see the live goat. Yeah, there's a live goat just wandering (laughs) around. adding to my long list of questions about Muppet Livestock. (laughs) Was was there a a separate dinner party with a goat and a cow and a pig and... A puppy. (laughs) A puppy. And some live chickens. (laughs) I mean, and spoiler alert, next week we're going to get a Muppet moose. So the questions, they will continue. Also in the course of this number is the whatnot that will become New Zealand, but currently is a lady. But because we know New Zealand, which the audience at the time did not, to me, it just looks like New Zealand in drag. And I think Wanda's here again, too. Like, not as Wanda, again, in another wig. but In that same new wig, I yeah, think. Yeah, that face is unmistakable, though. I also don't know what to make of the accent that he's doing. And I don't know whether the accent that he's doing would have applied to any part of the Roma people's diaspora? I can't imagine any of this is authentic in any way, right? Like, no. I mean, even the music itself sounds to me more like Russian Yiddish. Yeah, it's like klezmer. Right. Right. But I know that's all interconnected Eastern European folk music. You know, it's a a spectrum that's very, uh, very connected. Yeah, but but authenticity was not not the aim of this number. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was Peter Sellers doing his shtick, which right. is what made him famous and what people wanted to see, presumably. Like, yeah. I don't think anybody on The Muppet Show was like, oh, should we let him do this? 
we heard it's problematic. Nobody had heard it was problematic. No, because it, it, it absolutely wasn't. No, no. I mean, yeah, brownface has only recently been realized as problematic. I grew up with Short Circuit. I remember Fisher Stevens in, in brownface. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, The Mystery of Edwin Drew was on Broadway, what, five years ago? Mm-hmm. This is, yeah, this is a... Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Fun times. So the, uh, the Abe Burroughs train keeps rolling with a Ralph number. When the leaves of the old oak tree start a-rustling And a waterfall makes sounds like woman's tears When the whole world is filled with Mother Nature's noises That's the time to stuff cotton in your ears This is like the quintessential Rolf number. Mm-hmm. I love how angry Kermit gets about it. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. like he didn't know. Like it's like he missed rehearsal or something. Or like it had a different it had a different ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got the feeling that when they put the episode together, they had written something in that they didn't have time to produce, where there were supposed to be more sounds or more set or something else was supposed to happen that was gonna set Kermit off. Rather than I heard that Ralph was gonna sing about something noisy that never materialized. Oh, that's a really, that's really interesting. I just read it that he like thought it was going to be sweet and it wasn't sweet. That's what I thought. But yeah. your, your interpretation makes so much more sense. <laughs> Not a lot to say about it though. Like, it's, yeah, no, uh, nothing. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. I got no beefs with it. And it, I believe that it's on uh, Ralph's album. Old Brown Ears is back mm. as is the number that Gonzo sings later. Yes. So I, I have a lot of, happy nostalgic associations with this song so i got no problems with it yeah you never know when something funny is gonna happen on this show did something funny happen yeah you'd never know it (laughs) so in the uk spot is our uh third and final a burrow song i am strolling down memory lane without even a dying ember some folks remember their mothers and others their girlfriends behind. But I am strolling down memory lane without a ding dong thing on my mind. So I tracked down the original A. Burroughs version of this song, and it's actually part of a medley of many songs. Mini M-I-N-I, not lots of songs, in which a Burroughs is spoofing current pop songs, which Hmm. makes this slightly more interesting because there's like this one, then there's one called like The Girl with the Three Blue Eyes. (laughs) And then the the third one's called like The Hello Song or The Saying Hello Song. So there's like a shred of cultural commentary from like the 30s in this that is completely lost in translation. So are they all about dementia? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. It's bleak. These lyrics are bleak. Yeah. I hadn't necessarily taken it to that sort of dark. I I did feel it was kind of like, oh, somebody who's just kind of, kind of simple and innocent, but now I'm forever going to hear it in that, that tone. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, The the one thing I, I will say that I just hearing the clip just now, I hadn't caught before the audience laughter on, um, and others, their girlfriends behind, because you know, like I heard, it's like, oh, okay, it's an archaic way of saying right, my girlfriends in the past. But the laughter feels like it's leading into the double. Oh, 
Oh, very huh. much so, yes. Yeah, which I had not caught before. Oh. And it's like, okay, well. I'm mean, oh, and- learning all sorts of new things about this song. Yeah. Gonzo's also doing a very cute little dance throughout the... It's it's very, very cute, even though... It, it is I very cute, and he just mar- marches across the stage from the same direction three times. And the third time, he just runs into the piano and keeps walking. <laughs> it's nice. The intro to this is super weird. <laughs> Kermit uh, does an on-stage intro, and his foot gets stuck on something. And it's a great bit of puppetry, but I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> and my theory is that the episode was running short, and that Jim Henson is literally looking at a countdown clock. That they were like, you have 10 seconds to fill, go. And he was just... Make Kermit do something weird. Yeah, that he was just improving until time ran out. It's the only explanation I can I can find. That makes sense. Because, yeah, he asks, who chews gum around here? And, yeah, when everybody is made of fleece and fur, <laughs> <laughs> why would anybody leave gum on the floor? That's a terrible idea. But it is very cute to see Kermit manipulating his face and trying to pull his, himself away from his gum. Okay, so we, we return to familiar territory. <laughs> You may have noticed that we're not terribly well organized around here, and uh, tonight I'm just barely making it. I don't know. Sometimes it's very difficult. It's not easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves when I think it could be nicer being red or yellow. Oh, what a lovely song. I can't believe I've never heard it before. <laughs> uh, and it, and it's, it's, it relates so much to the problems Kermit's having running the show. Yeah, sure, sure does. Sure <laughs> does. Yeah, so, yeah, being green. Uh, this is our the second appearance of it. The first one being in the similarly terrible Peter Ustinov episode in season one. Uh, so we, we talked about the provenance of the song at length at that point. It, it is a Joe Raposo song, somewhere Frank Sinatra is very happy. Just to add some spice to this, uh, I pulled up three new fun facts about Joe Raposo. Uh, one, his middle name was Guillerme, <laughs> Joseph Guillerme Raposo. Spelled G-U-I-L-H-E-R-M-E. Yeah. Which I would have had no idea how to pronounce, so thank you. I discovered that... He wrote the theme for the the 80s cartoon version of Curious George, which I didn't know. Um, The Curious Little Monkey? Yeah, Curious George, Curious Little Monkey. It's one of the things when you listen to it, you're like, oh, oh, that's totally a Joe Raposo song. Yeah, I'm having that experience right now. That is totally a Joe Raposo song. (laughs) And also, he was married to the film critic Pat Collins. Didn't know that either. Hmm. So Kermit's backstage, and throughout the course of the song, like... His backdrop flies in like, like by the end of it he's in like the, the forest of despair but the forest of despair with like sears portrait studio realness <laughs> like, it's really super weird because on the one hand it's a neat effect that it happens gradually yeah so like you know at one point he's still very much on stage even though there's a set of the forest but then by the end i think you're supposed to just see him in the forest, but it's so flat and stagey, even though they're not showing you the stage floor anymore. I'm not quite sure what the effect they were going for was. Like he's on a, he's on a crate and then there's a, there's an edit and then the crate is, has turned into a stump. It's like, it was cool to look at it at the end of the song and think, Oh, I don't remember them switching this whole thing out, but now he's sitting on a tree stump and in the middle of a forest. 
I appreciate what they're trying to do. I mean, I did have the thought that perhaps what's going on here is that there's a certain cue that he can give to the the band and the backstage folk that, shit, the number that we had planned is not going to happen. Let's trot out the hit. This is Kermit sending the clowns, is what you're saying. This is... This is like, right. yeah, there's, there's, there's a disaster. Send in, send in V and Green. And so he can just start singing it, and then everyone rushes to catch up, and suddenly <laughs> there's the right set, and, you know, he has saved the show again. Man, yeah. now I wish he'd sung Send in the Clowns. <laughs> I would have actually cried at him singing about losing his timing this late in his career. Oh, but- oh man. There's a neat little bit of, of Muppet Craft that you could actually hear in that clip. He's like walking up towards a like a crate and then there's a cut it's a, it changes camera angles and he's sitting on the crate and there's a sound effect that they that they foleyed in just like a little like a little clunk mm-hmm. um he doesn't even jump like you would think that like in the before the cut you would see like a little hop happen but he doesn't even do that it's just the sound cue happens like over the edit and it completely sells the illusion of him like hopping up onto that crate it's just really neat because it's yeah. it's nothing, and I really like that. Um, but I don't yeah. know why we're doing this again. <laughs> yeah, the constituent parts of it are really nice. The problem is it makes no sense whatsoever. No, no, no. Because it's like if it were like it's not easy being in charge. It's not easy <laughs> running a show. I think this speaks to the thing you said earlier about like the the gum bit. It does seem like the show was running this short. That like they that they were like let's just let's just do being green again because and I I don't know and I don't know how much of that is sellers because sellers was a mercurial difficult person it's like possibly just did not have enough material with sellers so that's what they did they just dropped this in or like they had something planned for him to film on the second day of shooting and he was like no I'm done now yeah it's like I'm I'm I'm, I'm gonna go off and do cocaine so you know <laughs> which he was. The whole backstage thing, and the, well, I have a, actually a clip of this to illustrate it when we get to Muppet Labs, but like it, it all feels a little slapdash, and like part of that is the is the manic energy of it that is deliberate. But like even the the clip that we heard with um with Kermit and Fozzie, and the the duck hunting season, like f- sounds a little improvised, and like that can be a good thing, and it and it can be like a good scripted thing to sound natural, but. This isn't their best writing, I will say, right? And I, I do get a sense that there's a, a little, like, even like that intro to being green is a little bit like, well, yes, we're doing this song now. Yeah, something might have gone wrong. Yes, I'm going to figure out why while I'm going. I don't know. And I like, I often like that in the Muppet Show. We actually we talked about it last week with the Kermit and Rolf bit that that was like incredible improv. But this does feel a little bit less prepared in a less good way. It would certainly make it ironic because they then tell Peter Sellers before the closing number that the show is running long. Try to be short. Right. And they've just filled three or so minutes with just Kermit doing his old hit. Speaking of the closing number. We end on a preachy note. (laughs) (laughs) How I was happy and I had a good time. I had enough money to last me for life. I met with the gal and we went on a street. She 
taught me to smoke and to drink whiskey, cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women. They'll drive you crazy. They'll drive you insane. Yes, I know. Shockingly, that's not Mumford and Sons. That is uh, Peter Sellers dressed as a Salvation Army preacher and a weird array of Muppets, including some of Lubbock Lou's jug huggers, Dr. Strange Pork, and George, the janitor. Because why not? George. Uh, George. Yeah. So this is a song called Cigarettes and Whiskey. It was written by Tim Spencer, who uh, was a member of a group called Sons of the Pioneers, a group that Roy Rogers founded in 1933 that still exists today. Not with any of the original members, obviously, but um, but they're still around. Tim Spencer was inducted into the Western Music Hall of Fame as a songwriter and as a member of Sons of the Pioneers. This is fun. This, w- this was the one piece of the episode that I absolutely loved. Oh, I hate it so much. <laughs> Wait, do you tell us? I mean, it's just super not for me. I, I, I find Peter Sellers deeply off-putting in it. Like the makeup. The accent, it's not racist. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> yeah, it's a plus. Yeah, that going for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything he is doing is is a is a huge no from me. <laughs> I, I it, it's creepy. I don't like it. I think Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers look really weird in these costumes. Like it's just it's just a it doesn't work. There's something weird going on with the camera angles also where yeah. Yeah, there are all these shots where like the drum takes up most of the screen and, and you sort of see the tip of Peter Sellers face peeking up from behind it. And it's just, it's weird and uncomfortable. This is, this is like, so, this is so nitpicky. <laughs> the drum has like a logo on it. That's has like a banner where there should be a word. And then underneath it, it says band. And I was like, did you not finish? <laughs> like, is the band supposed to have a name? It's just weird because because of the way it's shot, it's really prominent in a couple of shots. And so I found it distracting. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't like it. I do think it's funny that in an episode where we get three songs by the co-writer of Guys and Dolls, we get a Salvation Army number, not by him. (laughs) I thought that too. Yeah, there is something weird about the composition of the shot where he's the same height as the Muppets and it didn't seem like he was supposed to be. I wonder if they told him, try to be short, and then he he as a joke, got down on his knees and said, okay, and what if he took that so literally that he carried it into this song? Maybe. And then George is just there in his janitor outfit. Yeah, just hanging out. But everybody else is in in costume for the number. I don't know. George definitely has opinions about about women. We know that about George. (laughs) (laughs) I got a kick out of this. I love a good sing-along. Also, I've been getting it stuck in my head all week, and my brain keeps supplying the last line of the chorus of Weird Al's The Night Santa Went Crazy for the end of the chorus of this. Something finally must have snapped in his brain. Cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? Uh, I guess we have to do this bit. Um, okay. Here is a bit where Peter Sellers is playing a masseuse. Does somebody want to pronounce the name of the masseuse for me? Oh, I can try. Maybe I can. Dr. Merkwardigliebe. Oh, good job. Thank you. Merkwardigliebe. Merkwardigliebe. Okay, which means Dr. Strangelove. So he's playing Dr. 
right? It means Doctor Strangelove. It's weird because he's not really playing Doctor Strangelove. Like he's doing he's doing that that weird British that weird German thing again, but it's it's a very different character, and I and I don't think I recognized that until I recently resaw the episode. Well, either way, it's creepy as fuck. Um, Link Hogthrob is lying on a table and he's pretending to do push-ups when Peter Sellers comes in as this doctor and he gets entrance applause and exit applause just for appearing as this creepy ass doctor. And he proceeds to basically torture Link under the guise of giving him a very painful massage. And we didn't clip it, I don't think, because it's pretty freaking disturbing, I thought. This should be funny and it's not and I don't know why. It's almost four minutes long of just him grinning menacingly at Link and saying, your naughty little body. <laughs> it was funnier when Linda Lavin did it with Kermit in the Muppets Take Manhattan. Yeah. Yes. It doesn't bother me. Like, I'm not disturbed by it, which I sense Michal is. <laughs> but I just, like, it just didn't, I'm just bored by it. It just, it goes on too long. Once you've seen the joke, it doesn't really build. Like, though, the, in the Muppets Take Manhattan version, it's both shorter and there's a little bit more of an arc to it where it starts with like a little bit of manipulation and then goes to the bigger like twisting and twisting. And so uh, it has somewhere to go. Whereas this, after the very first thing where he drops the weight on him, you know the whole joke. There's no surprise. There's nothing to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, he does eventually fold Link into a pretzel. But it takes four minutes to get there. I I'll say I didn't realize I didn't realize it was that long because this I I I actually kind of like this sketch, but I do think part of it is as I absolutely do not like Link Hogthrob. I've never cared for Link <laughs> uh, just because all of my experiences with Link were like, oh yeah, that's that that's that Muppet who makes fun of Miss Piggy the whole time, you know. Yeah. You know, and it's just like I I can't stand Link. So it's like so it's it's enjoyable to me when Link gets this kind of painful comeuppance. Um, and I, I do think there's things in this in this sketch that are the, the things that are enjoyable to me are the things that that felt like they clearly were not 100 percent planned. Um, I think the I, I actually really enjoy the moment where the weight rolls off of him and he catches it and he's like, ah, I caught it. Which is like, oh, yeah, it's like that. That wasn't that wasn't planned, and and I'm and I'm not 100 percent sure that it was fully planned that he would get stuck in in Link's arms. It's where he's like, I, I just, in my head, just like the let go of me, Link, Link, let go, of me. And like something about that just really um, stuck with me. So I am not uh, devaluing your opinions of it. I just have a very, I have a very uh, soft spot for the sketch. All right, that's fair. It was not for me, but I'm glad it's for somebody. So where we left off with the backstage plot, Kermit was frazzled and freaked out and losing his cool. Eventually, we find the culprit of all the appearing and disappearing tomfoolery. And the culprit is uh, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. You see, a teleporter is a device which instantly transports people from one place to another. Uh So that's what's been happening around here. You have been zapping people in and out of my theater. Please, Mr. Kermit, I'm in the very midst of an important demonstration. Oh, yeah? Well, listen, I'm in the midst of a nervous breakdown. You cannot go zapping people around. As I was saying, our new teleporter works perfectly. Yeah, it works perfectly, except that when he sends Beaker away to the jungles of Africa and then recalls him, Beaker is being throttled by a gorilla. And then when he tries again to bring Beaker back, it's now... Kermit in Beaker's place, 
That definitely feels like uh, Jim Henson flubbed his line. Yelling beaker when he meant to yell honeydew. They did not have time for another take. <laughs> That's very cute. And I like it. But, you know, my earlier point about things feeling a little uh, slapdash. Yeah, it's a nice performance from Kermit. Yeah. Happy to see the secret origin of Quango the Wild Mountain Gorilla. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a great Muppet Labs, but it does. it's of a piece with the rest of the manic energy of this episode. Yeah. Being green aside, the the backstage plot is perfectly fine. I don't know. I feel like it lacks something. And maybe it's just that the teleportation doesn't seem to have a point, and maybe wanting a point is my problem, not theirs. But, and maybe it's also like the whole, again, the issue of build. Like, once they've, they've teleported, and then they've teleported and dropped something, but then what? Eh. Yeah. Eh, seems like a fair response to all of this. I mean, listen, it does give us this opening, which we do not need to go through, of once again asking, is Muppet Labs a sketch or actually a research institute that happens to take place at the theater? Because if it is a sketch, why is this teleporting happening before the sketch happens? If it is a research institute, just why? (laughs) Uh I think this is one we can actually definitively answer. It is a research institute. It's like a cooking show, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an actual thing important. that they're doing, and then they present their findings. Yeah, on the, the latest show. developments from Muppet Labs. Because we will definitely see future fallout of Muppet Labs affecting lots of things. It's how they fulfill their is it EI requirements? You know what I'm talking about? Nope. <laughs> like. Uh, the the networks have have to allot a certain oh, amount the educational of, programming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you see, you see, like e slash i in the corner. Anyway, I mean, I yeah. Just, so this is knowing the news what show. we know about the Muppet Show's budget, meaning Kermit's budget. Like, how are they funding a research institute? They got a grant. Yeah, they might have gotten a grant for just the research, but not for the rest of the Muppet Show. Or it's some kind of trade. Like Bunsen needed a needed a space. I can fan wank this. All night, if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is probably where we take the off-ramp. Yep. Uh, does anyone have final thoughts about the episode as a whole? I'd just like to point out that we talked about the gang show, the gong show, and the goon show. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Bingo! Anyway, uh, before we go, we like to set apart a little bit of time to learn more about our guest, which is to say, Bilal, please plug your stuff. Uh, okay, well, in, in addition to the podcast I mentioned, uh, I guess the only other thing I could plug would be um, uh, if, if anybody uh, uses the Zombies Run running app, uh, I wrote a, a separate uh, separate from that world that they've created their uh, a show called Spellcast. So it's a bizarre little Britcom that makes you run. So that's another thing I've written. Hmm. Is that where, how do we access that? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, is I think that you, in Zombies Run or is it, that a separate I, app? Or? I believe so. I believe you, if you look in Zombies Run for new adventures and look for Spellcast, I believe that's how you find it. It's also kind of a weird thing for me because I'm not a runner. I've, I've only ever heard my own show in the clips that they sent back so I could, you know, edit and rewrite. But I have not actually used it as a. I have not actually used it as a runner because I'm not a runner. And I mean, we mentioned your other podcasts before, but if you want to tell us a little bit more about them, oh sure. Um, okay, so uh, 
Unwell is uh, it's a Midwestern Gothic mystery um, set in a small town in Ohio. Uh, um, a woman goes back to take care of her ailing mother and all strange things start happening. Uh, the fourth season of that is about to about to drop in March. The Imagine Neighborhood is a show that I actually work on with Vahal, which is how we know each other. Yeah. Um, which is a an audio podcast for kids that teaches them social emotional learning using the second step curriculum. Uh, and uh, Alba Salix, uh, Alba Salix is a show that I've written for, but my episodes have not yet come out for it. So, but I I do recommend it to people. It's a it's a a comedy set in a sort of you know medieval fantasy world, uh, dealing with the adventures of a grumpy royal physician. Very cool. We will include links to all of those things in the show notes so that listeners can find them easily. We'll include links, but we won't include Link Hogthrob, whom yep. Bilal oh, does not like. Oh, I do not like him. I just don't. Yeah, so many fat jokes. Yeah. Well, what did you think? Yeah, I know what you Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. And thanks for being here, Bilal. Thanks for having me. We'll be back next week to talk about the Petula Clark episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Uh, I should probably just cut off a future correction by saying, yes, Beyond the Fringe was also a very important British comedy show in between The Goon Show and Monty Python. I regret the omission. (laughs) (laughs) Dudley Moore Twitter is coming for you.